Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with LA Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, John explained how he and his team approached sequencing the witness testimonies in the trial and discussed the witnesses who testified at trial before the pandemic hiatus. In this episode, Lewin discusses the lengthy hiatus in the trial and the steps that he and his team took to keep the case alive during the uncertainty of the coronavirus pandemic. That's all coming up right after the break. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews were conducted by phone, the quality is often not optimal. Sometimes if you hear heavy traffic rushing by, that's because John is doing the call during one of his early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. And now here's more of my conversation with John Lewin. Take me through your experience with the hiatus and your thinking strategically about how to keep the trial alive with the uncertainty that was going on during the break in the trial. Well, we got on it. So if you recall, we had already filed, we filed a motion on that Thursday, March 12th. We filed a motion and the judge had granted it preliminarily orally to end up that next Monday, we were supposed to have a doctor coming from New York to testify. I think it was Helen Block, if I remember. And Helen, who's a true hero in this story, Helen at the time was in the middle of New York City at two of the worst hospitals that had that would prove to have the highest level of COVID fatalities of any place in the country. Helen had called, and I still remember this, I talked to her on probably Monday or Tuesday of that week. So Thursday was the 12th. So I talked to her on like the 9th, trying to schedule her. And she was telling me at the time how bad things were in New York. They didn't have any PPE. They didn't have enough staff. And she was telling me, this is really bad. She's never seen anything like it. Now, Helen, if I remember, was in her 60s at the time. And with no concern for herself, she was out there, you know, doing doing this job. I mean, really, truly heroic. She's an ER doctor. So what ended up happening was Helen ends up telling me, listen, I'm happy to come out. 
on Monday. I mean, you know, it's, it's, we're in the middle of this thing, but you know, it's important. I want to be there, but just so you know, I've been exposed because we don't even have enough masks here. So I guarantee you I've been exposed. So that forced me to have to tell the judge, hey, judge, she's willing to come out. She's not worried about herself, but she's basically telling me she doesn't, you know, just so you know, she's going to be bringing this, this disease in the middle of the worst place in the country. She's bringing it here to California. This is before we had any known, you know, cases. Now, when they, when they backtrack, and they end up doing, you know, the postmortem. You know, we actually had cases here much earlier. But at that time, we didn't know it was hardly here in California at all. So the judge granted my oral motion to allow her to testify by remote. But I filed after that was on Thursday. And then on Thursday afternoon late, if I remember, we filed another motion. And we were supposed to come back on either Monday or Tuesday. I can't remember which. And, uh, and over that weekend, that's when the order came out from the court, and uh, we never made it back. So at this point in time, I'm very, very worried. The pandemic seems terrible. It seems like we're going to lose a month of time. I don't even know how long it's going to be, but it's getting worse and worse. And I'm worried that if this case ends up, if they mistry it, how are we ever going to end up, first of all, we had a great jury, and what's going to happen is the defense is going to basically get the do-over that they want, and they're going to end up now. They're going to say they don't want the questionnaire, and now they're going to say we're not going to we're going to cancel this stipulation. So we had been very careful in our stipulations. We had written for each stipulation that they were irrevocable, that they could not be changed. Well, then the next question we're thinking of is, what if Bob ends up, what if they can mistry the case, and then Bob hires new lawyers? Now what's going to happen is those lawyers are going to say, we're not going to do these stipulations. They're foolish. So we felt our whole case was at risk, and there's not much we can do about it. So what we did was, is we very aggressively fought any issue of a mistrial. And we started doing research. We started planning our motions well before they even thought of, of filing a mistrial motion. We were ready. We had all our stuff researched because we knew that was going to be the battle. Meantime, we're monitoring Bob's phone calls, and I can talk about this because I put it in. I mentioned it at trial. We catch Bob on a, on a jail call telling uh, somebody that he doesn't like the jury and he's going to, quote, use the pandemic to get a do-over, which we thought was obviously disgusting, was manipulative. That's what he does. And we made sure that the judge was aware of it. Now, the defense was furious as if somehow <laughs> we're not allowed to use that information. It's absurd. So we were very busily fighting what we knew was going to be an epic battle of we can't have this case mistried. So that was the beginning of the pandemic. I think the big move that we made that was the probably the smartest thing that we did was in July, so the case kept getting delayed. So in July, we came back, and there was discussion, if you remember, of potentially starting in September. And we ended up getting an agreement. My concern was that if we ended up starting, we'd be starting and stopping, and it would be too big of an issue for the jurors. So my position was, hey, listen, they've hardly heard any evidence. The evidence they've heard was not even contested. Let's bring them back April 1st. That's after the flu season. I thought there would be a real bad flu season. Now, it turned out there was almost no flu because everybody, no one was out. Uh, 
you know, the flu, there was no flu in Australia, it never made it over here. But the idea that I was concerned about was even if COVID ends up declining over the winter, because flu and COVID look very similar, as soon as someone gets a cold or, or for the flu, we're going to be going through quarantine levels. We'll never get this thing done. So rather than do it in stages like this and make a motion for mistrial later on more legally supportable, let's just tell everybody not to come back until April 1st. And the defense, they were saying they did not want to come back until it was safe. They were very worried about COVID. They were also trying to get a mistrial. And so in the middle of that motion, we basically surprised them by saying, listen, we're going to support what the defense is saying, and we're not going to go back until this pandemic is in a much different situation. How about April 1st? And they were stuck because basically we were giving them what they were saying they wanted, but what they really wanted was a mistrial. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We now return to my conversation with John Lewin as he describes the impact of his team's tactical motion to postpone the trial by over half a year in order to allow the coronavirus pandemic to run its course. So we ended up, they had a little bit of time to think about it, and the judge ended up granting our motion. That was a huge thing for us because it meant that instead of coming back four different times and telling the jurors, okay, get ready for September 1st, get ready November 1st, get ready December 1st, get ready February 1st, we were able to tell the jurors months in advance, you're not coming back till April. So it's much less disruption for them. Because remember, if being on a jury is not a disruption if you're not having to go to court, so they can go live their lives. You know, it's not, and, and all that we're telling them is say, listen, you know, don't schedule any vacation, you know, starting in April. So meantime, the next thing that I did was I spent the remainder of the pandemic doing trial plans, finishing up my witnesses. That's the first thing I did. The witnesses that I had left, we'd already divided them up. And then I spent almost the entire pandemic on plans for defense witnesses. And I'm going to include Doug Oliver in that. So that meant I had to do Doug Oliver. I had to do Loftus. I had to do Bob Durst. And there was a whole lot of time. I mean, that took, you know. When you say do, that you mean prepare. Prepare, yes. And the preparation was that, man, I had every statement that Bob has ever given. So then I had to go through every statement he's ever given, plus every interview he's ever given, and then ask Ethan, hey, can you cut this clip? Again, Ethan is Ethan Milius, the audiovisually savvy deputy district attorney who was a key part of Lewin's team. What Ethan had done is we invested a lot of time and money early in the infrastructure of our case. So very early on, Ethan was cutting clips, putting them on Excel. We didn't waste time. So when we ended up, I had this giant, I think there's like 600 clips of Bob Durst or 700. And I had them all eventually. 
And then we ended up getting, obviously, more clips while Bob was testifying. But I was able to then basically go through every clip that we had, that I'd already pulled. I don't remember all of them. And then put them into, you know, put them into different categories in my outline and then figure out the questions around those clips. So I spent all of the pandemic in trial you know, when I can tell you the amount of work the defense did over the pandemic versus what we did is not, they're not on, in the same hemisphere. Coming back in April and then May, what were your big questions? What were your steps getting us to the first day of testimony? Well, so meantime, the defense wanted more time in April. Now, the, now the judge pulled a surprise on us that was problematic. And, you know, Judge Wyndham was terrific in this case, and he wanted to get things right. At one point in time, he ended up right where we were going to, the middle of April, I, I was on a quick vacation with my wife, and I got an email that, in essence, had said that the judge was, was again, looking at his ruling, this is on his own, about the elevator operators. Here, Lewin references the fact that Judge Mark Wyndham was reconsidering his decision on the admissibility of evidence related to a statement received by the NYPD from an elevator operator in Kathy Durst's Manhattan building, who suggested that Kathy was accompanied to her apartment by a man on the morning after she was last seen by Gilberta Najami. And kind of the theory of that was that if Bob was going to testify, that the reason that the elevator oper operator testimony was relevant is because he was aware of what they were saying, and therefore, since he was aware of what they were saying, he had no motive to flee or do anything because the elevator operators were going to exonerate him. Now, we, we were... We were shocked by this, and, and we discussed this in court. I think at one point the judge made a comment that, you know, maybe he had overthought this slightly because the defense argument was the opposite. Their entire theory on the case, everything Bob had ever said and what he ended up testifying to, was that Bob was terrified of being charged in New York. So, so that put us, put us in, a, in a little bit of a panic because we did not want the elevator operator stuff coming out, but especially we did not want it coming out when it had not come out originally. So remember, we gave the defense the opportunity for years to stipulate they could have brought in the, L the unavailable elevator operator testimony and from the doorman. The problem is, is if they would have brought it in, we were going to be able to bring in their other statements and could have shown it was bullshit. The worst case scenario for us would have been we don't, we would have put it on in our case, so it didn't look like they were hiding it. So now all of a sudden, after we start trial, there's going to be a switch and this is going to come in and we've already done opening. So that, that was a nightmare. It, it, it was averted. We actually had a bet. Eugene and I had a bet of how many times they were going to bring up the elevator operators after they lost. And I think the over-under for the trial was five. And Eugene got destroyed. I mean, they brought it up over and over and over again. They just never stopped trying to get that evidence in. So that's what I did over the break. I also attempted over over the break. I was very excited that they were going to be calling Dr. Altshuler. And I had done a ton of research on Altshuler. And one of the things that I had done is, and I don't know if you're aware of it, but the first day that they restarted the trial on May 17th, Zagarin's daughter had a podcast of all of her dad's, quote, great cases. 
And it premiered, I'm sure not, not accidentally, the first day that we restarted the trial. And, of course, which case you think they were previewing? They were previewing the dirt day. So one of the people that she had interviewed for this podcast was Dr. Altshuler. So I wanted to get the entire interview that they had done with Altshuler. Now, remember, we have been litigating for years the whole issue of the California uh, the uh, reporter's shield. Here, Lewin is discussing the California's reporter's shield, the law that shields a reporter from having their unaired, unpublished work product or sources subpoenaed in court. In the case of the makers of the jinx, this applied to documentarians, and in the case of Dick DeGaren's daughter, it would have applied to a podcaster. As to Dr. Milton Altshuler, he was a psychiatrist who claimed to have spent over 70 hours examining Robert Durst and diagnosed him with Asperger's syndrome. Ultimately, Altshuler was never called to testify. We have no legal right, nobody does, to unaired, unpublished footage or sources. Even though I asked for Altshuler, the discovery on Altshuler, if they were on their game, they didn't have to give it to me, but they don't know the law. So they gave me the whole interview without you. I was thrilled. And I'm allowed to ask for it. I mean, there's nothing that prevents me from asking for the discovery. They just say, I'm not going to give it to you. So this whole interview with Altshuler was gold, absolute gold. One of the things that Altshuler said on the interview is he minimized, basically said, the quote is not, is not completely accurate right now, but it's something to the effect of that, Bob didn't really use real violence against Kathy. It was pretty minor stuff. Al Schuler came off as a psychiatrist from, you know, the 50s. And by the 50s, I mean the 1850s, okay? Um, he was not going to present well. He was already in his 90s, and he's basically saying, you know, also Bob can't have relationships. Bob can't be close to anybody. Complete garbage. Al Schuler also said during the interview, which I was shocked, that in Galveston, he really wasn't an expert. He was really more of a member of the defense team. So by his own admission, Al Schuler is calling into question his what is supposed to be objectivity and saying, yeah, I'm a member of the defense team. This is my favorite. He was asked a question by DeGaren's daughter, who's doing a podcast about psychiatrists and their testimony. You can't make this shit up. He tells the following story to illustrate the point. Four doctors get together and they're arguing about what they do. And uh, you have an internist, a surgeon, a forensic pathologist, coroner, and a psychiatrist. And so the internist is up there talking about how much medicine he has to know for what he does and how brilliant he is. And the other guys are like, yeah, you're really smart. You have to know a lot of stuff, but, but you don't actually do anything. The surgeon then gets up and says, yeah, unlike this guy, I actually impact people's lives with my brilliant surgical skills. And the other doctor's like, basically, you're an idiot who just wants to cut open everything they say. The forensic pathologist gets up and explains his importance and what he does and how that uh, is benefits to humanity. And the other guys are like, wait a minute, you can't even help. You don't even meet anybody until they're dead. And then the psychiatrist gets up, and the other three doctors say, you don't know anything, you don't do anything, and you have no relevance at all. So that's a story that he's telling about his own profession. So that was going to be fun for Fox. So I was loaded for bear for him. 
and really salivating at being able to cross it. So during the pandemic, I called him, which I'm allowed to do. We'd never gotten any discovery. I wanted to interview him, and he turns me down. He says he won't interview. So meantime, when we restart the trial, I still haven't gotten any discovery. And we're putting pressure. I'm putting more pressure. So I think now June, maybe. And Dick comes into court one day, and he says, oh, Your Honor, um, we're not going to be calling Dr. Altshuler. And he says he had a serious stroke a year ago, and they didn't know it. They had no idea. So probably right after the podcast, you know, the guy was in his 90s. Now, I'm not saying you need to call your witnesses every day. Where you have an important expert who's in their 90s, you probably need to check on their availability more than uh, once every year and a half. So at that point in time, I said to the defense, hey, listen, I will stipulate that Altshuler can testify remotely because I just wanted this guy to testify. I would have, I would have, you know, done anything I could. And apparently, uh, he was, you know, so informed that that wasn't possible. And in the end, they didn't end up calling anybody else. I was hoping they would call another friend to come in. So what I did over the pandemic was work on all of these witness plans, primarily cross-examination and primarily Bob Durst. Were you surprised that all the jurors came back? Yes, although we ended up losing. So we lost, my memories, we lost two right off the bat. One, we had already agreed that they were going to be dismissed, but I didn't want that released to the public because that would just encourage other jurors to get out of it. So I had agreed in advance that that person would be dismissed. We lost the second juror, and then very soon after we started, we lost juror number three to a health issue. And then we ended up losing an alternate or another issue, two alternates who ended up having problems with commuting. And, and then we ended up losing juror number two who was getting married. So, yeah, no, but I was, I was surprised at the number of jurors that came back. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us in our next installment as John Lewin discusses the post-hiatus opening statements to the jury and shares a story of Lisa Russell, who served on Lewin's prosecution team while battling cancer. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracon. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. <laughs>